Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. But while the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Colleen Hacker, professor of kinesiology at Pacific Lutheran University, as well as the mental skills coach for the U.S. women's national hockey team. She has a prolific background as a mental skills coach for top-performing athletes uh, across the country. She worked with the U.S. women's national soccer team in the 90s and early 2000s when they won multiple Olympic and World Cup gold medals. She, as I said, works now with the U.S. women's national hockey team and has been doing so for the last nine years, including helping them win silver in Sochi and gold in the Pyeongchang Olympics. She has written a book titled Catch Them Being Good, Everything You Need to Know to Successfully Coach Girls. And she's won a long list, too long to read here, of accolades and accomplishments over her career. This was a a fantastic conversation. Dr. Hacker has so much energy and passion for this topic. And we get into a number of things, including the two traits that set gold medal Olympians apart from the rest, how to avoid stifling motivation in others. Uh, She has some really, really interesting and, and kind of heartbreaking statistics on how we accidentally stifle intrinsic motivation in those around us, especially in our children, but how to bring that back if it has been stifled. And so there's a ton in here that I think people are going to enjoy. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here is Dr. Colleen Hacker. And we are live. Dr. Hacker, welcome to the show. Good to be here. You and I were riffing before I just hit record, and I was like, all right, stop, 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 stop. We got to hit record before we jump into this. I'm, I'm very excited for this conversation. I We were introduced through a mutual friend, and I watched your interview on the ESPNW conference and then uh, listened to you on the Judy on Judy Foudy's podcast, Julie Foudy's podcast, sorry, and was just like, oh, man, I have to talk to this woman if there's an opportunity to do it. So I want to dive in and start just with your origin story, you know? Your title is mental skills coach, which I just think is fascinating. How did you get into performance? Like, what what is the origin story to how you started on the path to do what you do? Yeah, in some ways, it's drippingly predictable. I, the personal and the professional are very integrated in my life. And it's always been that way. I'm smiling when I hear that question. And I... To this day, in my library in the study, I have books from my childhood. And I think, okay, quite a few decades later, apparently my interest areas haven't changed. My reading hasn't changed. It's just fascinating to me. But the simplest way I can say it is I am the youngest in my family, the only girl with two older brothers. So living most of my childhood in a full Nelson or running away from two older brothers is what I did for fun. And so literally everything about my life was related to competition and physical capabilities. I mean, everything was like chase her around the yard, chase her around the house, throw things. And I'm laughing now because none of it was negative. Like I would ask to play those games. So the physical dimension of my life, I began competitive sport at age five, swimming for 10 years, played three sports in high school, three sports in college, been invited to two Olympic trials in two different sports. As an adult, I've run 50 half marathons, seven marathons, 
you know, I just, I play and I compete and there's never been a phase in my life where I haven't done that. Okay. So that's, that's the me part of the equation. The overlap came really honestly, O'Brien in college. When I recognized I wasn't the tallest, I wasn't necessarily the fastest, I wasn't necessarily the strongest, then why am I matching up so well against these other folks who were bigger, taller, stronger, faster? Why am I winning? Why am I in the starting role? And this fascinated me. It was curious to me and it fascinated me. In other words, there was not a physiological, biological, or physical explanation for it. Well, that narrows it down pretty quickly. So truly in college is when I became fascinated with the psychological dimension. And I, and I, I absolutely had an explicit awareness that it was what was in my head and what was in my heart. And then I wanted to study that, which is my response to anything. It's like you joking about us riffing ahead of time. And I wrote down three things that I need to learn about because of what you shared with me. I haven't grown out of any of those tendencies. So it, is beca- it became a formal and happily a lifelong quest to look scientifically from an evidence-based standpoint of greatness and excellence and achievement and performance. And here we are. Well, I was going to ask you the question about like how you turn that from your own performance into somebody else's. And like there's an incredible amount of self-awareness there. And I was I was going to ask you, you know, about that self-awareness and where that came from, but I think you answered it talking about your curiosity. And one question about curiosity though, do you find that you're curious and tenacious like that in sort of cross-disciplinary areas? Or is it just sort of myopically focused on the one or two things that that really drive you that you're passionate about? Yeah, probably right in between those. If, if you said generally, where do you fall? Generally, I'm highly curious. And my response to almost every challenge is, to read more and to seek experts, read more, seek experts, read more, seek experts. One of my favorite stories, my mother used to tell this story of when I was a little girl and we'd be at the pool. As I said, I swam a couple hours a day. And the reason I'm sharing this is to say it, nothing's changed. I used to go up to the best divers at our swim club and say, I love that dive. Can you show me how to do it? As a little kid, as a little kid going up to strangers, I've always been drawn to people who are excellent at what they do. I grew up in Amish country. So I was drawn to seeing barn raisings and quilt making and communities coming together. I know this seems disparate, but to me, that's the answer to your question. I am interested in excellence in a variety of domains. So what drives me is passion, a quest for excellence, people who shun mediocrity, right? Mediocrity's congratulations, we've all achieved it, right? If you're, if you're yeah. breathing, you've reached that standard. I'm always curious about that. And that, that interest is cross-disciplinary. It's pan-disciplinary. That's why I say from barn raising to sport, from impressionist paintings to great thinkers of our time, to the best of uh, the canons of literature. I mean, it's across domains, but what makes people who seek excellence different? I'm fascinated by that. I'm more fascinated every year of my life. Yeah. Well, my, my wife and I found a show on Netflix the other day called Song Exploder, which goes into how different artists created certain songs. And so we're big Hamilton fans as are a billion people out there, but they Lin-Manuel Miranda and his orchestrator and director talk about wait for it and how they built that. And just, I wound up watching it twice because I watched it without my wife and then I pulled her into the room and we watched it again. And I just, it is, there's, I just find it so interesting how people who create amazing things or are passionate about something, how they think about that thing. 
and how they commit their time and energy to that thing. It is fascinating. And when you really start listening, on the one hand, it's individual, and it is. It's anecdotal, and it is. It's true for them, and it is. But you collect enough of those diamonds, and you start seeing common threads. 100%. And, and that's the particulars matter for that particular discipline, but I'm drawn to the common threads, the common elements. And you're so right earlier when you say, you know, when I'm working with clients, I have clients that I'm so fortunate. They're the best in the world at what they do in their particular sport or craft. And I've, they've been clients for a decade. In other words, it's not just a one hit wonder. It's not just a six month deal. Like they're on this quest for excellence and it is explicit. It's active for them. That's one of the differences. I have a phrase I say, if you're green, you're growing. And if you're ripe, you're rotting like fruit on the tree. Yeah. And people who are excellent are always green and growing, right? They're always green and growing. They expect to learn something new and they do. And the average, the also ran, the greats in their minds are like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. No, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I'm professional. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, I'm an Olympian. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Fortune 500. I mean, they're focused on where they are. And really, the greats are pushing boundaries. They are looking, they're horizon gazers. They're aware of where they are, but they want to know what's possible. And, and they're willing to roll up their sleeves to get there. I love that. I've heard the, I think it's Epictetus, maybe. There's a, a Stoic philosopher who said, you can't learn anything you think you already know. Amen. Yeah, Amen is what I'd say to that. And there's so many variations of that, right? The, the Zen master saying, you have to pour out the tea in your cup. I have nothing to give you. The cup's already full. We have to empty what we have so that we can accept more, right? Well, I think that's what you're talking about, about base principles, right? You can look at these societies through time, through around the world, and then through the span of time. And they're all seeing a version of the same thing, which is beginner's mindset. Right. And I'm smiling because if you really study and you really read and you're broad rather than your initial question, rather than narrow and niche oriented, you realize there's very few new ideas. I mean, I'm an idea person, and yet I'm telling you that there's just different ways of saying it, different metaphors, different historic, socio-political or historic context for it. And I'm always, this is not going to sound, come out sounding very well, but I'm old enough not to care. I mean, I, I'd rather be honest than, <laughs> Bring it on. than Bring not. It on. And say, I just listen to amusement when, when folks discover a new idea. It's like, yes, it's very new for centuries old. Like, because it's new for you doesn't make it new. And, and I'm amazed that there's not curiosity around that. That there's, yeah. well, where did, we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, right? And so we mix it up. It's, and hopefully it's not me talking out of both sides of my mouth. In other words, there's X number of words in the English language. We're not inventing new words, but the beauty is reformulating and recreating those words in a new way. So there, so there is originality, there is uniqueness, but it's a reformulation of what's come before. And I'm amazed at how little curiosity and awareness there, there is, or a drive to say, now, where did that come from? And where did that come from? And what is that a variation from? The lack of interest in backward chaining baffles me. That's really what I'd say. It baffles me because there's so much wisdom. And so I'll end the way I began the story. It just amuses me to no end when someone hears something for the first time and thinks it's new. Yeah. And I find that problematic. It is empowering to realize that it's not new, to realize that it's new to you, and then 
to say, oh, no, this is something that exists out in the world, because that means then there's more to learn about it. There's more that other people have to teach you about it, too. So to your point about seeking experts, you know, there are people out there who you can call upon on many of these different topics. Absolutely. I, I mean, I wish I could bottle the, that those two connected phrases you just gave. It means when you when you back chain, there's more people who can teach you and there's more to learn. And it doesn't end. So you go back one generation. Oh my gosh, more people to teach me, more to learn. Oh my God, back one generation, more. It's never ending. It's never ending. I say, you know, that I made this career choice in my 20s is staggering to me because I love it more all the time. Like, oh, I I dodged that career bullet. I'm more fascinated. I'm more aware of what I don't know and how many, how much more there is to learn. I'm more fascinated. I'm more motivated. It's amazing to me. And I feel so grateful to have that feeling because I have peers that are just like, been there, done that. And I, it makes my heart sad because that shows up in other areas of life. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. You see, you see that it starts to eat away at you. So let's get into the work then, because I I think all of this is fascinating, but I, I would like to explore kind of how you go about doing what you do. So you show up to a new team, new client, whatever the case may be. Where do you start? What does that assessment look like? You know, what's going through your head? What are you looking for? How, how are you evaluating the individuals? What, what does that look like? I'm smiling because we're talking about all of these icons and masters. And now I'm about to quote Yogi Berra, but you know, there it is. But Yogi Berra, you know, if, if your listeners aren't aware of all the yogiisms, put that, put that on the to-do list because, you know, in their simplicity and the oxymorons is wisdom. And Yogi Berra says, you can observe a lot by watching. And so where, where I start is by observing, is watching. Now, I will say the process is different. And I don't want to get too much in the weeds, so definitely pull me back. But I would say if I had to to organize them, there's three different processes. There's me working with a team, and I'll talk briefly about that. In other words, I'm brought into an NFL team. I'm brought into an Olympic team. I'm brought into a national team. And I'll I'll talk about that. The second process would be working with individuals on that team. So I'm working with the team, right? In my field, it's called collective efficacy, but the individuals comprise that group. So inevitably, I've never worked any team, whether it's Major League Baseball, MLS, NWSL, Olympic, NFL, I've never worked with a team that I didn't also work then one-on-one with individuals with that team. So I have the one-to-team relationship and then the one-on-one relationship. Then the third model, there's others, but these, these are the three biggest pieces to the pie, is individual elite athletes who will work with me to enhance their game or to fix something that that is not quite where they want it, or it's, you know, there's four or five different reasons why people would reach out to me. And so the process for each of those are, are different, but they share common elements. And I go back to the Yogi Bear, you observe a lot by watching. When I'm brought in for a team the first time, first of all, I don't go in unaware. So prior to me going into a team first time, I've asked for film footage. So I'm getting a ton of game performances. I'm getting to watch the team, the coaching staff, the support staff. I'm getting to watch the key individuals. So before I get on a plane and join a team, I've watched so many hours of performance. So I'm looking at how do they react when they're ahead, when they're behind, when they make a mistake, when they're corrected, when a teammate makes a mistake, who's stepping up to to lead. What happens to communication? I mean, so many things, right? I'm watching, I'm observing, and I'm looking for trends. I'm looking for common, common behavioral. I want it to be observable. 
right? I'm not a psychoanalyst. They're athletes. They're performers. So the coin of the realm in their lives is performance. So I want evidence for it. I'm looking for behavior. I'm looking for for emotion displayed as behavior. I'm looking for thought patterns that are reflected in behavior. So when I go in with a team, now I've watched tens and tens and tens of hours of individuals in the team. Now I'm going into the team and I'm just being. I'm not back there analyzing. I'm not out. You know, it's slow. It's like trying to catch a butterfly. If you have children and your children go to catch a butterfly, that butterfly's leaving. They're never going to catch the butterfly. So, so you sit, you sit, and then the butterfly will come. And so I try to be helpful in other ways. I'm happy to shag balls. I'm happy to fill water bottles. I'm happy to throw sweats out. In other words, just be helpful. Just be around, yeah. be helpful. And be then, immersed in the group. Yeah, yeah. Not force myself, not feel like Dr. Freud's, you know, daughter in the corner. I'm not analyzing them. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to understand. Then when individual clients come to me, they're coming to me and hiring me for a reason. So I'm probably not at that time, haven't watched 50 hours of footage. So then it's listening to them saying, what's working? Is this common? Is it new? Tell me about it. And then we go to work from there. There's about a dozen common mental skills that you kind of look for from a cognitive behavioral standpoint. And so you're looking for a peg, you're looking for an entry point, but truly elite athletes want to get better. They want to stay there longer and they are hungry for proven science and expertise that will will help them achieve those goals. Is there anything you mentioned uh, roughly a dozen traits that you're looking for? Are there any things that you see as common, maybe easy fixes that pe- patterns that people fall into regularly that would be helpful to identify to people listening to this just to just say, oh yeah, these are the common and kind of easiest low-hanging fruit? Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to be the lawyer in the podcast, but that's a compound question. And so my answers are different if I parse out the first part of the question and the second part of the question. Okay. Well, let's start. Let's do that then. What the first part is just what are the things that you see recurring? What we know, and, and this research comes from Gould and others who studied 20 years of Olympians, right? So Olympians are already in a class by themselves. And many of these Olympians are also professional athletes. So when I say elite, I mean truly some of the best in the world at what they do. And so the research, and, and, and I will always ground what I'm saying in, in research, right? Or I'll tell you in my experience, that parenthetical phrase will tell you, you know, when, when I'm aligning this with the science and, and when The science is overlaid on personal experience. But, and to me, this is exciting when there are two simple elements that from 20 years of research, men, women, team, individual sports, winter, summer games, two characteristics of elite performers that separate them from good or very good. That's intrinsic motivation and mental toughness. And and that research has been borne out in my, on my four-decade career. So intrinsic motivation, meaning doing things because you want to, rather than that you have to. You have a personal drive for excellence. You have an insatiable drive for self-improvement. You want to be tested. You want to be challenged. Uh, you want to improve. You want to see how your, ma- your, your skills match up. Other people do what they have to do. And it feels like a burden and it feels like a sacrifice and it feels like they're giving up something. It's extrinsic. 
for the money, for the fame, for the glory, for the notoriety. And that's a roller coaster. That's a roller coaster. I'm not saying it never works, right? Contract year, it works, right? Everybody <laughs> wants to play well in their contract year, but and then they'll level off again. And then and then it's contract, right? It's a roller coaster. But intrinsic motivation means that you're always stoking the fire. You're chopping the wood, you're adding the kindling, you're keeping that fire burning. And the second element is mental toughness. And O'Brien, let me just say it simply. Everybody thinks they're mentally tough. I mean, I haven't met an athlete who doesn't think they're mentally tough. No mental toughness is required when you're starting, when you're not injured, when nobody's criticizing you, when you're playing well. Don't talk to me about mental toughness then. Mental toughness only comes into play when there's problems, failure, setback, adversity. So those are the two consistent separators from good to great is intrinsic motivation and mental toughness. Can an individual build each of those? Yes. Yes. And I'm, I'm actually working right now on a national presentation with one of the greatest coaches in the United States of all time. Anson Dorrance is the legendary women's soccer coach at University of North Carolina. He's won 21, 22 Division I national championships, right? Mia Hamm, Heather O'Reilly, Carla Overbeck, Crystal Dunn, Christine Lilly. I mean, just the giants, right, in soccer. And our presentation this January is on mental toughness, born or made. Okay. And our thesis and the supporting research says, like anything, like any characteristic that we have, different people are born with different amounts. Absolutely. Like everybody isn't born with the same strength or everybody's not born with the same talent, but mental toughness can be improved with systematic training by doing certain things, by responding certain ways, by adopting certain behaviors. It absolutely can be strengthened. And that's really. That's really what we're going to be talking to coaches at all levels around the world is building mental toughness. It can be. And sadly, most of us seem to have been born, ironically, with high amount of intrinsic motivation. When children learn nouns, dog, cat, dada, mama, that's intrinsic motivation where they want to gain mastery over their environment and they're curious and they want to grow and and as soon as kids can talk till about age five the most common thing you're going to hear is watch me watch this watch me watch this they want to demonstrate mastery right and they love learning new things and then and i could excuse me goosebumps and then the research shows that that Desire for excellence, unfortunately, gets co-opted by extrinsic rewards. Make your bed and you'll earn your allowance, as opposed to make your bed because your room is neater, because you want to take... Pr- and, and parents are going... Yeah, like well, paying they for grades. They, yeah. yeah, they won't do it if we don't pay them. Like, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. So... We unfortunately control behavior by connecting extrinsic rewards with what used to be intrinsically motivating. And then kids are like, no rewards? I'm not doing that. I mean, there's research with children coloring in second grade that when they get rewards for coloring and then they're allowed to color or not color on their own, they're like, why would I color? I mean, there's no, oh. there's no reward. It's heartbreaking. It's, oh, it just makes me sick. Correct. It Correct. makes me sick to think that we could, that you could ruin. I mean, that's maybe that's a tough word, but that you could ruin somebody's drive like that just by something as simple as like giving them a gold star right. when they're young. And again, don't get me wrong. We mean well. Yeah. So the teachers are thinking, let's give kid, let's get kids to color. But unfortunately, they tie extrinsic rewards for already intrinsically rewarding behavior. 
So I want you to get better at sport, not because I'm going to love you more, not because you're going to get a division one scholarship, not because you're going to be a starter, not because you're going to be an all American, because it's so bloody satisfying to get a little bit better today and a little bit better tomorrow and a little bit like I'm not as good as I could be, but I'm better than I was yesterday. That self-satisfaction from pushing the limits is so powerful. And then I'm just going to connect it. I don't want to get jargony, but these aren't complicated terms. It's also related to what DC and Ryan, two scholars on self-determination theory, that providing children, but children grow up to be adolescents and adolescents grow up to be adults and adults go on to become, you know, superstars. It's all a continuation that we want to develop autonomy, mastery, and relatedness. Autonomy, mastery, and relatedness so that we give people a choice, but you do it developmentally appropriate. When I was a kid, my parents didn't say, oh, we're supposed to give our children choice. What do you want to wear to school today? They would say, do you want to wear the red this or the blue this? They gave me two good choices, right? But I'm making the choice. Mastery, getting better at something. So choice and mastery and relatedness. I I smile when I think of, of questions or conversations like this. Mia Hamm, arguably one of the greatest soccer players of of any generation, was asked why she continues to play, right? She's won multiple World Cups, multiple gold medals, et cetera, et cetera. She said, I play now for the same reasons I did as a kid. I love being with my friends and I love the game. Boom, mic drop. What more do you need? What more do you need? And to do that for an entire career... Why do you play? Because I love, right, autonomy, mastery, relatedness, relatedness. I love being with my friends and I love the great game of soccer. Intrinsic, intrinsic, intrinsic. Is there a way to reclaim intrinsic motivation? So we, you talked about how people can steal it from you. Is there a way to reclaim it? Yeah, it, it's a lot harder. It's not unlike the advice on health and wellness. It's much easier to engage in behaviors that keep us healthy and well than to treat the disease or to treat the crime. So think of that in parallel ways. Yes, you can. And I have to deal with that with clients. I have to deal with that. They have multi, multi, multi million dollar salaries, as you can imagine. They don't have autonomy. They can walk into the locker room and go, yeah, I guess I got traded. Honey, we're moving to a different city. I mean, they're controlled in a lot of ways and their friendships are ephemeral, right? It's this team this year, this team this year, this city this year, that community next year. So I'm just explaining to you why. This isn't some personality flaw in these folks. There's good reason why that intrinsic motivation gets constantly hit and chipped away. So the phrase I use is, let's revisit the dream. Let's revisit the dream. So it's not unlike the story I just told you with Mia Hamm. So I might say with an elite client that feels controlled by the contract, controlled by the team, controlled by the sport, if I don't do this, what am I going to do? That's not exactly a recipe for excellence, right? When you feel boxed in. Okay, let's revisit the dream. You you had all this physical talent at such and such an age. You were unbelievable. You know, you ran track or you played baseball or you played basketball or you played American football or what. Why did you choose this? You just ask them to revisit the dream and you see a transformation. Oh my God. You know, we used to get these oranges at halftime and I loved our, our uniforms. We were like the killer bees, you know, they start telling about these silly youth sport names and that's an opening. So I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but it's like we, we ask them to sort of peel back the layers and revisit 
why they were engaged to begin with, why they stuck with it, why they, whatever, whatever their story is, why they didn't graduate, why they came out of college earlier, why, why they didn't play for this team and, and they played for, there's a reason when and a historical time frame where you can see when it started changing. All right. And, and just simple things. When was the last time you laughed? And that's a pause. That's why I say hunt joy. And they're like, hunt joy. I mean, it's a grind. Just yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I've heard you say them, hunt joy asking before. Asking them to do that. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I was going to ask you about hunting joy because I had heard you say that a couple times before. Can you just talk to the importance of joy? It's just essential. It's back to part of the intrinsic motivation. I go back to the wisdom of children. I go, I mean, it's unbelievable how mentally tough there's not one of us on planet Earth that would be bipedal if we weren't mentally tough because all of us stood up and fell down and we stood up again and we fell down and we stood and we wobbled, right? None of us would be walking on two legs. None of us would be bipedal if we weren't mentally tough. We got back up again. We were undaunted. Uh, we weren't embarrassed. I, I'll give you five bucks if you can find a child learning to walk who shows any sign of embarrassment. They are nothing but determined. They are focused and they take two steps and it, they might not even be able to talk. And it's like, did you see that? Like they're so proud, like one, two, boom. I think we're done here today. I know that was a great, the wisdom of children. And we're trying, ironically, we're trying to recreate that. So, you know, hopefully you follow the, the little seeds that I'm planting. Children are experiencing joy all the time. They're giggling. They're laughing. They're fascinated. They're curious. Okay. And then we get to be adults. And this is going to be pointless on a podcast, but I acted out. I acted out this way because I'm a, I'm a university professor in addition to a mental skills coach, but I have my own soccer camp. So I work with, right, every summer I have six-year-olds to 17-year-olds, and then nine months of the year I work with 18 to 22-year-olds. Okay. You ask a seven-year-old, I have 37-year-olds sitting in front of me, and I say something like this, who can tell me, oh, Oh, every hand goes up. I'm like, <laughs> you don't know the question. You just said, who can tell me? And 30 hands go up. And you're like the gross national product of Zimbabwe. They're like, I don't know, 12. I mean, they're still undaunted. You ask, right? And every hand goes up. You ask, you ask seven-year-olds to get a partner and they go grab each other. What I'm trying to say is it's physical, it's immediate, it's delightful. You ask a senior to find a partner and it's like, it's a head nod, right? We're already too cool for school. If you ask a college student to find a partner, they'll go, I thought you had a sinus partners in one lifetime. So true. I mean, I, I could even picture that interaction before you described it. In so, one yeah. lifetime. All right. So yeah. back to your question. It may seem like I take a lot of right and left turns, but, but I never lose the thread. I trust you. Okay. And so you say, hunt joy. What I'm saying is that as adults, it's no longer spontaneous, it's no longer automatic, and it sure as heck is no longer as frequent. So now we have to take something that used to be automatic, frequent, and thoughtless, and we have to make it explicit. It gives me no joy to say we have to hunt joy but oh, when I see the transformation, it makes me sad that we're at that point, but I accept that we're at that point. So we hunt joy. You look for it. It's called priming, right? There's a whole psychological research around this. And one of the challenges I've set for myself, there's scholars who write for other scholars. And then there's, mm, I don't want to make this sound disparaging sort of motivational speakers, like they have a good shtick, they're fascinating, they're interesting, but if you ask them to explain why 
or what that's based on or what's this. I don't know, but the audiences love it, right? All sizzle and no steak, all sizzle and no, no steak. And one of the things that I've challenged myself to do in my career is to be able to read, know, and understand scholarly literature and be able to translate it in conversational way that is accessible to everyone. But just like you've heard in this, in this talk, I can talk about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. I can talk about self-determination theory. I can talk about verbal, cognitive, visual primes, but I don't have to. But back to Hunt Joy, we have to prime it. If I said to your listeners, when's the last time you saw a red car? I don't know. When's the last time I saw a red car? And if that's the last thing I asked you before you drove today, I'll tell you what you would notice on your drive. O'Brien? A bunch of red cars. Red cars. Where yeah, yesterday... I have to go get in the car after this, so I'm sure that's all I'm going to see. I'm that's gonna... an example of a verbal prime, a verbal visual prime. So when you challenge people to hunt joy, guess what happens? They're, they're finding the joy. They're finding it. They are, they're aware of when they went to squeeze the water bottle, it was facing the wrong way and they squeezed it and the water went out the other way and they can laugh at it. They're aware that they were making a run on the field and all of a sudden they fell over and instead of being embarrassed, they're laughing about it. They're aware of how much they love when their teammate says whatever, right? When you prime people to hunt joy, like what was joyful for you today? What, what made you laugh at practice? I'll tell you, 90% of athletes are like, I think that's illegal. I don't think you're allowed to laugh at practice. Like, well, if you're not having fun, you're not plugged in to the intrinsic reasons why you love the sport, right? It's incredible what you get to do. So I'm not saying, that's why I say hunt joy. It might not be a belly laugh, but bonus if you get one. It's just these dozens of moments that make you happy. Like, like before we started our formal chat and I said, I'm looking at Puget Sound water. I'm looking at the Olympic mountains. I'm looking at old growth forest. That's joyful for me. So joyful is a little bit more subtle. It's deeper. It's personal but it's omnipresent. It's available to us all the time if we're willing to hunt for it and we're open to it. Going back to the your comment about uh, how we ruin intrinsic motivation, what are the things that you see leaders doing that accidentally steal joy? I, I can tell you what the research says, which also mirrors what my experience is. We've, we've hit on one, but I'll just say them both together. They engage in controlling behavior. So do this so. If you don't scream in the grocery store, I'll give you your favorite treat, right? That's controlling behavior. So we know that controlling behavior rather than motivating it to do it because it's the right thing to do, because goodness comes from that, because you'll feel more proud of yourself. There's a thousand reasons to not scream in grocery stores, the least of which is that I'll get a candy bar afterwards, right? So it's, and let me just anticipate, because I live in the world, here's what everyone who's listening is saying, but it works but it works. If you come late today, you're going to have to do 50 push-ups. And you know what, doc? They don't come late anymore. Correct. And they never want to do push-ups again. Like I just did push-ups for my, because push-ups make my pecs stronger. Push-ups help my triceps be stronger. I like how I feel when I'm strong. I want to do, in other words, it does work. So you win the battle, but you lose the war. As soon as you're not there to control their behavior, here's what the research shows. The behavior stops. So the two things that we do to undermine intrinsic motivation is we control behavior and we tie behavior to extrinsic rewards. The number of parents who tell me 
the money they spend, the camps they send their kids to, the coaches that they hire, so that they'll get a Division One scholarship. It's everywhere. And I imagine that I imagine they say that and are proud of it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Rather than which, I guess the right answer is, this is all the money I spend so that my child can do the thing they love. So that my child can do this thing that they love, and the child doesn't feel. Listen, the amount of research that shows that kids are afraid to quit because they're all too aware of how much money their parents spend. They're all too aware of how our vacations revolved around your sporting schedule. See how my voice changes? They're all too aware of what we do on our weekends. It's actually called the reverse dependency trap where parents live vicariously through their child's achievement. And the kids don't have a name for it, but they know what it feels like. They know know what the opening line is on today's Hanukkah card or Kwanzaa card or Christmas card is. And Susie won the U-12 national championship and Tommy's team won states. They learn very quickly what gets praised rather than learning a new skill, working hard at something, being willing to stick with something that they're not very good at, being very coachable, being a good teammate. For some reason, that doesn't make the top 10 of the Christmas card highlights of the year. What I'm trying to say in ways clear and subtle, kids get the message of what matters. Yeah. And it's, you know, you you talk about base principles at the beginning of this too. Like, you've told a lot of stories about how kids react to things. And I think anyone, just in case somebody missed this, it's how adults react to them too. And so, you know, I, I think that's one of the big fallacies is that kids are different than adults and that we, some, we somehow are more rational. I mean, in many ways, we are more rational, but, you know, that, that we're going to behave emotionally different than a child will and that those same human drivers are somehow different. And it's funny, everybody I talk to who is an expert in anything relating to human beings very quickly points out that it's all just human behavior. I mean, I'm just nodding and saying, amen, 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 amen. I mean, I just go back to, I believe, and the high achievers are evidence of that belief, that we're made to try new things, to extend our capabilities that the pride comes in facing something difficult to try to overcome it. You know, that which we achieve too easily, we esteem too lightly. Like when we have to work, it matters. If you just, if your first podcast goes viral, I would challenge you to say, are you going to work harder? Are you going to try new things? Or I'm already a success. When you really ask adults, their growth moments, more often than not, there's going to be failure or adversity or difficulty in that story. And I think that's another thing that we need to highlight for kids, but we need to highlight for high achievers too. You know, mistakes are part of seeking excellence. If you're playing it safe, you're not at the edge. If you listen to stories about Katie Ledecky, right? Multiple world record swimmer that she would purposely in training go out too hard, too fast, see when, when she didn't have any more in the tank. How many other people make sure they have just enough in the tank to be able to finish today's practice? In other words, they're playing within their comfort zone. They're playing within their capabilities. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable to push boundaries. You have to be able to go where you are no longer excellent to pursue excellence, certainly to stay there, certainly to stay there. And so this fear of recrimination, this fear of backlash, this fear of negative evaluation, the fear of loss keeps us comfortable and really excellent performers are they're not out there in left field they're willing to go just outside the boundary 
And what happens? The boundary extends. So what are they doing next? Going just outside the boundary. And then the boundary extends. I mean, I could, I could tell story after story after story of performers who sort of transformed the sport by their willingness to do that. It's rife. The other thing that I, I would say, though, and I would be remiss not to comment on this in, in terms of separating out good from great, is attention to detail. A couple decades ago, I bought my mother a book for Christmas. Some of you of a certain age will remember it. It was a smaller book, and it was called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And it was a bestseller. And I laugh now. I bought it for a loved one. And I'm like, here's what I can tell you. Whoever wrote that was not an Olympic gold medalist. Whoever wrote that <laughs> was not a Super Bowl champion. Listen, there's, there's good wisdom in that. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating it. But I use that as a counter. It's that 1% difference. That The devil's in the details. That little bit makes all the difference, right? I talk about it with clients, talking about the secret of the slight edge. And at 211 degrees, water is hot. You don't want to drink it. You don't want to spill it on yourself. But at 212 degrees, water boils. And what comes from boiling water is powerful enough to propel a locomotive, right? Steam. And the difference is one degree. And I have a ton of videos that I'll show to clients, a a Cracker Barrel 500 in a 250-lap car race, 500-mile car race, where the margin of victory is a foot and a half. A foot and a half. You know, the margin of victory is so infinitesimal that if you are not sweating the small stuff, if you don't have an attention to detail, excellence is unlikely. And so this unending quest, one of, the, one of the credits that I give our 2018 Olympic team, U.S. women's ice hockey hadn't won a gold medal in 20 years. They won the first gold medal in 1998, had not won a gold medal until our gold medal in Pyeongchang in 2018. And our theme for 2018, the year leading up to Pyeongchang, was one degree. And we built that and infused that in every element of our training, physiological one-degree improvement, psychological one-degree improvement, tactical, technical, team, and we measured it. We measured it. And so each training block, right, there's a mathematical phrase called the aggregation of marginal gains. I have to earn my $1.50 for a PhD somewhere. (laughs) But the aggregation of marginal gains, I even laugh at it too, but it's the grown-up way to say it. But over time, the differences are little. But if you're not engaged in active improvement, it is a very gradual downward trend aggregation of marginal gains, 1%, over time, you can't see it. But when we get 1% better every week in some area, and then you multiply that by 52 weeks in a year across the four performance elements, you get a gold medal, to be blunt, I mean, to shorten the story, that that was the difference. We were great in 2014. We were great for a silver medal, right? Most people would love to be second best in the world at something. But for that team, uh uh-uh, right? That next level, that next level, and that aggregation of marginal gains and the commitment to get 1% better across all four performance pillars is what led from silver to gold. Add that to U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, right? No, No other nation on planet Earth has achieved and sustained excellence to the extent that that team has. And it's because they're not safe. They don't play in this comfortable bubble. They're pushing the elements. And the public doesn't always praise it, do they? I mean, depending on how much you follow the team, you know, they suffer the slings and arrows for pushing the limit. Yeah. Well, and they're pushing the limits in all aspects. Boom. You know, they're back to your first question. 
People who do that don't just do it in a little box. Once you see what comes from that process, why wouldn't you apply it to all areas of life? Yeah. Rhetorical question, because the answer is you would. You would. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I, I asked you that question about how you build on that stuff. And, and that's what's happened in my own life is there were a few key decisions where I said, you know what, I'm not going to do the thing that's expected. I'm going to do the thing that interests me. And I got away with it. How hard was a, it? How hard was it to make that decision? I was conflicted for sure. And it was, you know, the first big one I think was choosing my major in college. And did I go the business route or did I go the communication route? And I walked into the communication building and they had a TV studio in the building and they had one of those big control rooms with all the screens up and the switchboard and they had a studio in the back with three cameras. And I love movies, was obsessed with movies. And I was like, this is cool. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to do this. And I wound up making a couple short films in college and shot a documentary which was great and, and had this really like rich, fulfilling experience. But I was also like doing a bunch of work outside of class. I was the one who would stay after and ask the teacher a bunch of questions. And it just like had so much intrinsic value that that I think later when I was making other choices, wound up realizing that it was okay to pick things that I was naturally interested in. I love everything about that story. Look at how whatever words you want to use, but it was emotion and passion that drove it. But that's never enough. But it was emotion and passion that drove it. And then you pursued the technical expertise, the knowledge, the skill set. You became more competent, right? Then the work began. But how different is work when you're passionate about the work? Yeah. You were, yeah, and curious and that was the thing. I was endlessly curious with how movies got made and how stories got told. And so I was writing stuff on my own. I was asking questions of teachers and, you know, they had, they, there were a couple of times the teacher had to kick me out because the next class was in and about ready to start. So, okay, but, it, but me, I was not like that in other classes. Let you know, me push, that, let me push back to you. What would an average classmate do? I mean, they're in college, so they're already in an elite group. They're a communications major. So they're already showing interest. Tell me what an average communication student would do. Well, I think an average one would show up, do the work, and go on their way. Correct. They're never going to get kicked out because they're not staying late. They're not choosing projects out on their own because, like, I already did my assignments. I guess we're done here. They were doing assignments. They were getting grades. They were achieving the standards are expert. You, you with me on this? Yeah. Okay. Use that same language. That's what I have goosebumps again, O'Brien, because one of my favorite authors is Mae Sarton. But, you know, she says, when you come full circle, when you go a million different directions and you come back to the beginning again, pay attention and look at what we've done. A common element. You're talking about your communications journey. And we could separate out the detail, take out the word communication, and now make you an NFL quarterback. And I would submit that the story would sound similar. And now let's take out communication and take out NFL quarterback and make you an entrepreneur. And the blank, isn't that, that to me, oh, that gets me up in the morning. (laughs) I love that. Well, and it, I mean, how inspiring to think that you could just plug and like pull that out and plug anything back in. Correct. Yeah, Correct. I think that's really inspiring. Correct. Well, we are at the top of time here. And I think that is just a great place to end this anyway. As you said, we ended where we began. Dr. Hacker, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your expertise. And I would encourage anybody who found this interesting to go and look you up in a number of your other conversations that you've had, because everything I've listened to is unique and and helpful. So really appreciate it. My pleasure. I've looked forward to this for a long long time. So it's just a joy. It's just a joy to share, you know, the back and forth. I was going to say this brought me a lot of joy. I didn't need to hunt too hard for this joy. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.